I'm Mark Hennick. This is So-Called Normal. Hey folks, welcome to So-Called Normal. I'm Mark Hennick. Today we have on the show Lee Thomas. I've wanted to talk to Lee for a while now. Uh, They're a mental health and LGBTQ speaker, and we had the opportunity to connect uh, in, where were we? Dallas, Texas, for some reason. Lee is in Calgary. I'm in Toronto. And we met up and it took us to go to Dallas together to to meet up to have this conversation uh, at a conference that we were attending of of other health advocates. And we had a little contingent of mental health advocates as well. So this episode and and a couple of others that we're going to be having were all recorded there on site uh, at the Health E-Voices conference in Dallas, Texas. Uh, I love talking to Lee so much because they've got uh, such a uh, a holistic and I think well-needed, um, somewhat challenging view of the mental health space. And we get into that a bit. You know, what does it mean to be a mental health advocate? And especially, you know, asking yourself the question, asking others the question, what are you advocating for? Because not all advocacy is super helpful. Sometimes we encounter people who are advocating for things that may not actually, we may not agree with or we may not see as as uh, beneficial to the cause. And, and that's challenging, too, to take care of yourself as an advocate. So we just scratch the surface of all those uh, little themes. So stay tuned for the whole conversation. It's it's really a good one all the way through. I really enjoyed talking to Lee. So here's my conversation on so-called normal with Lee Thomas. I am Lee Thomas. I'm a mental health advocate. Um, I'm also a grad student. I'm doing my master's in social work right now. I've been doing a lot of advocacy around youth mental health, and I'm only now starting to like shift that into being about mental health more generally. Mm. Um, I'm 25 now. And so I'm not really a youth anymore. Depending who you (laughs) ask, there's all these like youth definitions going up to 30 and I'm like not. Yeah. Yeah. After I started having kids and getting grays and (laughs) you're like, I feel weird being a youth now. Yeah. (laughs) Creaking and groaning when I get out of bed. It's like, yeah, it's probably we can give up this youth. Yeah. It's like kind of once I start paying my own taxes, I was (laughs) like, oh, like I really, if this feels weird, like to be lumped in like 11 to 29, I'm like, oh, it's a bit broad. Yeah. 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 So you said you've been broadening out uh, to talk about mental health more generally, but Mm -hmm. let's talk about the specifics for a minute. Why did you get into this in the first place? Why do you? Advocate. Yeah. So I grew up in a very small town in Northern Alberta. Um, So a little town called Whitecourt, where most famous because a guy um, was walking his dog in the woods outside of Tim Hortons and a uh, mountain lion jumped out of a tree and attacked his dog. And so he punched it in the face. Oh, good. And the headline was, Man Punches Cougar at Tim Hortons. And that's like what my hometown is famous for. (laughs) So we're Googleable. The man was not from Whitecourt. The cougar was. We'll take it. (laughs) Um, And so growing up, like no one talked about mental health. It was just very much. It wasn't even like we we didn't have conversations like we don't talk about this. We just Just learned by not talking about it. So what's the population of that so town. Like, um, like pretty when small. I was growing up, probably about 7,000 people. Okay. Yeah. So pretty um, small. Yeah. yeah. But biggest town for like 200 kilometers in any oh, direction, wow. right? Yeah, biggest yeah. town until you hit Edmonton. Yeah. So yeah, we thought of yeah. ourselves, we were real mad we weren't a city. Yeah. We thought we were entitled to it. <laughs> um, so you're, but you're saying, and this is how I grew up in Cape Breton um, and, and Sydney in particular, which was a, a bit bigger than that. It was about 20, 25,000, I think. But even still, it just wasn't the culture of our family. It, it's no. not that it was frowned on, although it was. Mm-hmm. It's just that nobody talked about it, right? Yeah. And I feel like it's hard to, it's kind of like when you learn something, you're like, wow, it, I never would have learned that if someone hadn't told me it mm-hmm. because it would never even occur to me that that's something I could Google or something I could look into. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's, you, it's hard to know what you don't know. Yeah. And so growing up and it's like, no one talks about this, but I don't, I'm not even aware that no one talks right. about it. What about your family, your parents, your um, <laughs> So my parents are both teachers Mm -hmm. and I'm the youngest of three, Mm -hmm. um, which explains all of my attention seeking habits. (laughs) Um, If you believe in that birth order (laughs) stuff. I also happen to be the youngest of three. Oh, shocking. (laughs) It's shocking. Um, Yeah, yeah. And so they are very stiff upper lip kind of people. Mm. Um, My mom was born in Scotland and my dad was raised Irish Catholic. Uh, So we're not like a real feelingsy sort of family. Right. 
Um, we have a lot in common that <laughs> I didn't realize. Like, oh, God. Oh yeah. God. <laughs> so I get the Irish Catholic thing, the Scottish thing in Cape yeah. Breton. Like, wow. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so my family, even to this day, we're very good at talking about like factual things, yeah. but not very much emotional things. Yeah. Um, so like my partner, Caroline, and I broke up a couple months ago. Um, and like I, I would have no problem like calling them and be like, Caroline and I broke up. Mm -hmm. But I would never call them ahead of time and say like Caroline and I are like having – like there's some tension there and can I talk mm. to you about it and like suss this out with you? That would be super weird. My parents right. would be like, what the hell? If uh, it was a boy, would that be okay? Do you think? No, I don't think it, I don't think it's like an LGBTQ thing. No. I think it's just more like that emotional right. side of thing. Right. Like it's, it's not our wheelhouse. Right. Even with mental health, like I think there's still a vulnerability around talking sure. about mental health and my parents know what I do. I've actually presented at the school that I went to and the school that they teach at. Oh, interesting. How um, was that? There's, it's always weird, yeah, I find, going back to the homeland. super weird, <laughs> especially because like I – at that point I would have been, I don't know, maybe five years out from when I graduated high school. Right. So there was like a lot of teachers there who still knew me. Sure. There was like some of my like friends' younger siblings were still going to the school. It was like super yeah. weird, yeah. especially because like I very much changed everything about myself once I left White Court. Like, okay. you know. Cut my hair, change my name. It's right. like a real Mulan move. Right. Um, <laughs> Find yourself, all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, so, moved across the country. And so coming back, they was like, oh, like Colleen Thomas. And I was like, who the fuck is that? Right. Like, oh, interesting. Yeah. So what motivated that? Were were you struggling with oh, your yeah, original identity? Oh, yeah, very much so. Yeah. yeah. So I started struggling with like, I'd say like mental health generally in middle school. So I would have been like okay. 11 or 12. And then didn't really get, I kind of flew under the radar until university. So I was like struggling with an eating disorder, struggling with self-harm, depression, but in a very stereotypical fashion, which makes me mad because I like to think that I'm special mm. and like a statistical exception, but in a very statistically average sort of way, I mm. kind of flew under the radar because I got good grades and didn't have too many outbursts. Right. Um, you, so did, then, you did it the Irish Catholic. I did the Irish Catholic, yeah. right? I was like guilty and sad right. and like took it out on and myself. Life is hard. It's hard for everybody. <laughs> like, you just, I, I'm like, is everyone not this miserable? Right. right. And I grew up yeah. in like, you know, like the emo age, right? right. So I'm listening to like yeah. My Chemical Romance and I'm like, this is just a normal way to feel. Like everyone wants to die. This is fine. Yeah, yeah really. Yeah. yeah. So then I was still very unhappy, moved to New Brunswick. I actually, I wrestled all through middle school and high school. I was very good at it. Mm -hmm. And I moved to UNB in or to Fredericton to go to UNB and wrestle mm -hmm. and then wrestled for my first year university, stopped doing that yeah. and then decided to get some mental health help. Um, okay. Very, again, Were very, those two things related or why Yeah, because so yeah. a big chunk of my struggle was eating disorder stuff and right. wrestling is a very weight-centered sport. Sure. Yeah. So you can get away with a lot of, maybe get away with is not the right word, but <laughs> you can engage in a lot of really disordered behaviors and people won't flag it because it's right. like dedication to the sport, right? right? Like right. if I didn't eat for a couple of days, I didn't need to keep that a secret almost ever right. because it was like, ah, yes, dedication to my my sport. Right. Kind of yeah. It's, it's, it's almost like the the CEO with bipolar disorder who's super yeah. productive when they're manic. Or, yeah. And it's know, not the, seen as a bad thing, Exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. Because you, you happen to find a community. And I think we're attracted to communities, of course. That's what we do as humans uh, that make us feel good about whatever it is that we're doing, even if what we're doing isn't necessarily good for us. And like, I know there's this biological aspect to mental health. Like I'm I get that, sure. but I think there is this huge social aspect to it too that sometimes these conversations around biology miss a little bit. Mm. So, you know, what we see as a symptom is socially constructed sure. in a lot of ways. Sure. So I was able to engage in a lot of these behaviors and have it be very socially endorsed, partly because I was like always a very chubby kid. Right. And so, you know, if I'm weighing my food and, you know, exercising all the time, people see that as like self-discipline and self-improvement. Mm. Or because um, I, I got diagnosed with bipolar disorder much later, um, but I, I teach mental health first aid mm -hmm. and they talk a lot about, you know, work as a measure of wellness. And I always problematize right. that a little bit in my presentations um, because when I was really sick with my bipolar disorder, I was, you know, a very productive, very sure. manic employee. I it was turns amazing. out you don't sleep for 18 hours. I, know, I was like, but, wasn't yeah. eating, wasn't sleeping, was getting all of my self-worth from my work. Yeah. And now that I'm healthier, I'm a much worse employee <laughs> because I'm like, I'm sorry, it's 4.30. I'd like to leave now unless yes. you want to pay me overtime, right? Yes. Like I have that healthier work-life balance, but yeah. it's 
Employers I don't, think don't that like makes, that as much. I yeah. don't think that makes you a worse employee. I think it makes you, <laughs> you know, you're taking care Depends of Depends who you ask. True. You're not a good capitalist, True. if that's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't think anybody would accuse you of being a capitalist anyway. <laughs> no. But, <laughs> so, so, okay, you're in college uh, and the wheels fall off, basically. Yeah. That's what you're telling me. Yeah. So with, um, and again, very stereotypical story, like with eating disorders and like, you know, the self-harm and the mood disorder kind of all coming to a head and lack of parental supervision. And mm. I was living in residence, you know, know, big kind of party culture. Mm -hmm. Um, Residence meal hall was like not great for me because it was like unlimited food Mm. and no supervision. And um, I was living in all girls residence at the time. And some other people on my floor also had eating disorders. And we Mm. didn't have the healthiest relationship with that and each other. Like we were great friends, but not great supporters of each other. It's a weird environment, isn't it? Especially for first year students. I didn't... I only realize this now as I, I, I keep saying as I get older, I'm only in my early thirties, but even still. I just imagine you talking like a long white beard. Yeah, yeah, you say yeah. That, in like my a, day. A pipe. <laughs> no, but as I get older, I realize how young I was in first year, second year university. Like you're, you're still a kid. You're straight out of high school mm-hmm. and nobody taught me how to, any, well, most people had to do that, right? Yeah. You're just thrown out there. And, and it's just kind of like, good luck, kids. And for me, yeah. it was overall a very positive sure. experience. Yeah, me too. Like, yeah. Um, it was an opportunity when I needed it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of just kind of like, well, good luck out there. Yeah. Like, figure it out. Yeah. And I think just a lot of assumptions of, again, that whole society thing. Like, what do we see as normal rites of passage? Right. Right. Yeah. And do you think that it's still generally or, or was at the time seen as a normal rite of passage to struggle with depression in this way or or whatever the... Um, the struggle was? I feel like more it was seen as like a normal rite of passage to be very profoundly unhappy. Mm-hmm. I And that's where I think I struggled was I was aware that I was unhappy, mm-hmm. but I didn't think that I was like struggling with a mental illness because right. I was, I think maybe in the early days of people starting to raise awareness about mental mm-hmm. health and mental illness. Mm-hmm. But there was, and I think still is very much this vibe of like, you have all these fakers out there who are making it harder for everyone, people who say they have anxiety and depression and they mm. don't, and they're just making it way harder for the people who actually do struggle. Mm. And I, th- I, I thought that, I was a faker. Yeah, I did. I think that piece seems to be new, but people don't realize that this whole mental health awareness thing hasn't been around all that long. Mm. It's been five, 10 years that we've been doing it in a really um, profound and an intentional way, I think. Yeah. But it hasn't really fully sunk in yet either. No. You know? And I think we're just starting to get to the point where we can have those more nuanced conversations yeah. um, around things. Like I was having a great conversation with someone yesterday where you have these arguments about like, I don't want people to see me as an illness. I want people to see me as a person. Mm-hmm. And then you have people who, you know, um, have this idea of like, well, my illness does impact every single part of sure. who I am. Like, yeah. you know, I'm not defined by it, but it yeah. actu- actually 100% influences every single thing about right. me. Right. And so it's trying to balance that, like, you know, I don't want people to only see me as someone with a mental illness or, you know, someone who's trans or someone who's like, whatever. Like, I want them, but I like, so I don't want them to only see that, but I also don't want them to like see around no, that, sure. right? Like, I don't yeah. want them to be like, I don't see you as like, a mentally ill person. I just see you as a person because it's like, well, I don't want you to unsee this huge influential part of me. I don't know if you've reflected on this, but how much stigma at that point in your life had you internalized that you believed a lot? Like what, so what if you're a mentally ill person? What does that mean? Oh, bucket loads, right? right? And I always struggle with this idea of do these small steps make it harder for us to take big steps? Mm. Um, So what do you mean by that? I'm thinking in like, say in the LGBTQ community, We've done a lot of advocacy work around like, and when I say we, I don't mean like me personally. Well, you have. Um, but like <laughs> not in this particular way, but there's like all these yeah. like campaigns around like, you know, like not all gay people are, if, say we talk about gay men, not all gay men are flamboyant and not mm. all gay men are feminine and not all gay men, you know, want to be fashion designers or like right, whatever, right. which like I get that because you want to expand the box that people can live in. But there is still this subtext of like, I'm sorry, is being a flamboyant feminine fashion designer like something right something bad. Right. Right. And so I think we see that with say mental health initiatives where it's like, well, not everyone with a mental illness, you know, is X, Y, and Z. And some things are like objectively bad. You're like, okay, like not everyone with a mental illness is a serial killer. Like that's an objectively bad thing to be. (laughs) Um, But I feel like there is still this, you know, subtext of we want to avoid all the kind of icky things like this whole idea of you see these campaigns around mental health and addiction. I think my definition, one of my campaigns Mm -hmm. kind of fed into this a little bit, Mm. um, this idea of, you know, 
mentally ill people aren't these people you see on the street and people who are talking to themselves. It's normal people like you and me yeah. who live with mental illness. And as a result, we forget about the people who are living on the right? street. Right? And, and I was struggling. like, yeah, yeah. And even if it was only, you know, people who are living in the street or whoever, like, I'm sorry, does that make it less of an important right. issue? Yeah. And so that's part of the reason, like, I've taken a bit of a step back with the My Definition campaign part, like, it's like very time consuming and it doesn't necessarily fit with my politics anymore. Mm. And that was part of it was I was like, I don't want to be reinforcing these messages that there's like a right way to have a mental illness. Had you thought about featuring people who fit those stereotypes? It's not something I – because I mostly would like go with university populations because right. that's like where that I was, was the at the time. Yeah, I was yeah. also no, a university student. Yeah. And I think for me it was less about, okay, I want to make this campaign something that does fit with my politics and more about like this campaign was never as radical as I wanted it to be. Mm. So – I'm not going to try to like squeeze it into something radical. I'm just going to go, you know what? That served the purpose I needed it to serve. And it's okay for me to move on to something yeah. else. Yeah. So like with my writing, I get to be a bit more radical. Yeah. And how has that, that um, been evolving for you in terms of shifting how you do advocacy? You know, was that hard for you? Sometimes people really want to cling to what they've always done. Yeah. I feel like I've never had that sense of like permanency. No. So for me, it's like I, I'm like, you know, not sad that my definition isn't a huge no, part of my life. I always wanted it to right. kind of work itself out. Mm. You know what I mean? Like I, I, even from the very beginning, I was like, I want my definition to get to a point where it's like not seen as necessary anymore. Right. Right. What I've struggled with more is as my advocacy has become a bit more radical and become honestly, I think a bit more meaningful to mm. me, mm-hmm. um, people don't want to hear it as much. Oh, that's true. <laughs> Yeah, the more marginal you get. And I, actually, I think this is why in many ways mental health awareness has become so popular is because it's been neutered. Because it's, become it's palatable. been sanitized. It's been, it's about self-care and it's about, and these are great yeah. things. Self-care is important. Don't get me wrong. But it's a lot more complicated than that. And sometimes it's it's actually often messy and uncomfortable and, and, so, and challenging. Like self-care is such a good example of like so individualized, right. right? Like if I am struggling with my mental health because I can't afford my medications and because mm-hmm. I'm facing discrimination and because of, you know, X, Y, and Z, like me doing self-care, yes, it's not a bad thing for me to do, but if we're yelling at me to do self-care, why are we not yelling at my landlord to lower my rent and yelling at, you know, the school system to stop being like messed up? You know what I mean? Like, why is it on me? Yeah. I don't know if if you've noticed this as well, but I certainly have, and 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 I've talked about this, I've been criticized for this, that the pendulum in the mental health advocacy world in a very short time has swung really hard back to the biomedical, take your meds, see your psychiatrist, and and then you'll be cured and get all better. Yeah. Uh, and and Or even on the dark side of that, some people just can't be cured mm-hmm. uh, because their brain is broken and they're, or they're fundamentally different in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes me really uncomfortable <laughs> as I think a broader-minded person. Have you noticed that as well? I definitely have seen the pendulum swing. Well, I feel like I kind of jumped on when the pendulum was still swinging very mm. biologically. Mm. And I struggled with this because for a while, the biological model I found very comforting. Sure. It's it's simple, yeah. <laughs> right? I loved the idea of like, I was just sick and there was like a yep. point in my DNA where this was inevitable. It helped me like really shift some of the blame. Yeah. Yeah. But I also see the dangers of it and I don't super buy into it right, <laughs> um, right. anymore. Well, I mean, I think I've, it took me a long time. I had many medications that made me worse and mm-hmm. I eventually found one that worked for me well enough. Um, but I don't attribute uh, much of my recovery to that. It helped stabilize me, sure, but that's not what caused me my recovery. Yeah, and like, and I like still take medications. I find yeah. them very useful, but I feel like it's again that individual thing, right? If you, as an individual, have it in your DNA or in you know whatever chemicals are going on in your body, we don't need to look at like how messed up our society is, right? right? Like because then it's a Mark problem or then it's a Lee problem. Yeah. It's not. It's um, there was a, a presentation that I spoke at a long time ago um, at Dal, and not me, one of the other people, but I'm going to steal it right now. Said, <laughs> you know, if all the frogs in the pond are sick, you should look at the pond. Right. But we we're looking at each individual frog and yes. being like, what's wrong with this frog? Yeah. And that was specifically they were talking like post secondary, but I keep hearing all these conversations that's around you know the epidemic example. of anxiety that's sweeping our schools yeah. and what's wrong with our children and and I'm like, what's it? I feel like maybe we shouldn't be looking at all these individual kids and instead right. we should be like, wow, we're you know, there's this pressure cooker of society that we've got going on, and yeah, what are we need the to other do something factors. about that? <laughs> I also find, uh, you know, I'm uh, I think as many people have probably noticed that there's 
little more dangerous than giving people a little bit of information about something because then they're going to take it either way too far or misinterpret it. Or And I find this is the case with basic neuroscience information as well, that there's, um, especially in the advocacy community, I've noticed, um, people who will bang the drum about it's your brain, the problem is your brain, but they don't actually seem to really fundamentally understand much about the brain, uh, about how neuroplasticity works and how our environment, if you're poor, if you're racialized, if you're marginalized in any way, the the impact that trauma has on your brain, that just because they, we have pictures of somebody's brain who looks different, who has depression, that doesn't mean that's what caused their depression. It actually could have went the other way around. So people don't seem to understand the scientific part of it, right? Yeah. And it's, again, I, I always try to like pull out in my brain like these these unspoken things. Mm. So with that, if it's like, okay, well, it's, you know, your, your brain is sick, mm. let's say. Mm-hmm. Is the, the kind of unspoken foundation still that, okay, if we couldn't pinpoint a structural chemical thing in your brain, then it would somehow be your fault and you should mm. just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Right. It's kind of like if we look at like LGBTQ stuff where they, I, I, I keep drawing parallels. I'm sorry. No, that's great. Um, that, that's a good, indica- a good uh, marker of wisdom. I think that, oh, I, that I've seen. It is. Wise quote Mark Hennig, Early <laughs> Thomas. I'll add you as one of my references great. Um, to my resume. <laughs> Put it on the back of your book cover when you write one. Exactly. Wise. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but like, with LGBTQ stuff, you know, there's all these people saying, oh, well, you know, you're born this way. You mm. you can you can see that like a trans man's brain is the same as a cis man's brain. And so trans men actually aren't women or whatever right. it is, like, which is great in some ways sure. because it, you know, buys us that that respect or that access that we need. But when people say like, oh, well, you know, being gay isn't a choice or being trans isn't a choice. I'm like, yeah, that's probably true. But even if it was a choice, like that doesn't mean that I shouldn't have right. rights. You can, know what I mean? So can I ask you about this? Because yeah. this is something, this is one of those things that I've uh, thought about, but uh, because I'm not a member of the of the LGBTQ community, I haven't felt that it's at all in any way my role to actually mm-hmm. speak on this point because I'm not qualified. But I've often asked myself the question when I've heard that that tagline, you know, born this way, um, what, so so what if it, why can't you just choose? It, like, uh, sure, it, say, if, say it was. What's wrong with that? Why mm-hmm. can't you just choose to be gay if you want to? But I guess What's that's, the difference? Because <laughs> right? I'm like, I, and you, all, I was like, you also grew up in a small town. Because for right. me, like even growing up gay in a small town, right. the idea that it wasn't my choice, that this was just right. a biological predisposition, it helped me shift some of sure. that shame and blame. And that's where I get like hung up because I'm like, I know for me, it helped me shift that shame and blame at the beginning. Right. But then when I got older, I was kind of like, oh, like that's still operating within the parameters of like, if it was a choice, you would choose differently. Right. So there is still that like underlying shame in it. Right. For me. Yeah. So I, right. I don't super love those born this way narratives. Right. But then I struggle with, you know, if I didn't have that five years ago, would I be where right. I am now? Right. Or maybe if I didn't have that five years ago, I'd be where I am now way sooner. Yeah. You know, and that's like we, when we were starting to talk about the um, uh, biological determinants of mental health, I, I very much feel like that that serves the same function, too, that it's an entry point for people because mm-hmm. it's simplistic. I mean, we, we've, we found out a long time ago that the chemical imbalance model never actually had very much evidence, uh, but it's easy. And that's when I was first diagnosed. I sat in front of a social worker who pulled out her whiteboard and her little red dry erase marker. She drew two neurons, little trees. She showed me the little balls of neurotransmitters that go between them, serotonin, and I needed more of those little balls. That's yeah, what she so told me. Because <laughs> it was easy. Yeah. It didn't matter if it was accurate. It was easy. And, and that was, I guess, what I needed at the time. It did help. So I, I think maybe all of these narratives serve a purpose uh, mm-hmm. for for a time, and then we have to let them go and move on. Yeah. I just worry that there are people who never, never learn move on. the next step. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. that's that's where I guess, you know, again, like in the gay community, we have, I, I've been calling it the gay marriage effect, which I don't mm. know if that's like me being disrespectful. Um, but I feel like, you know, the queer community really banded together and was like, gay marriage is a cause that's very important to us. Um, and this is like, this is a tiny little step, this tiny little, very palatable step. Let's mm. please make this happen. And then, you know, we got gay marriage, fabulous, awesome, love it, really important, gave people a lot of access to things that they should have access to. Mm. And then now it's kind of held up as like, well, we don't need all this like trans rights stuff. We don't need all this like other weird queer shit that's happening because mm. you have gay marriage. So stop complaining. Right. And so it's, Yes, it's progress, but it almost feels like it's now being used as like an impediment to further progress. Right. And so I worry about that with like various other things where when we soften the system a little bit, 
people use that as a way to say, like, see, the system's not all that bad. Right. Like, I don't want, you know, like, if we look at the prison system, Mm -hmm. like, it's great if we're housing, you know, trans women with women and trans men with men and, like, recognizing and affirming that gender identity. Like, that's great. Mm -hmm. It's better than not doing that. But I don't want people to think that that makes, you know, the disproportionate incarceration right. of trans people an okay thing. Right. You know what I mean? Right. So I, well, this, I worry this, about it being held up yeah. as like, oh, it's fine now. Sure. This happens in the psychiatric treatment community all the time, especially now the last few years where, um, you know, especially wealthy donors are giving millions and millions of dollars to psychiatric hospitals mm-hmm. uh, to inspire hope and to, to promote recovery and all this stuff. And they, they get great glossy campaigns and they build new buildings that have lots of glass and swooping corners and all this stuff. But then if you actually go visit, the treatment conditions are not much different, mm-hmm. right? And and I, I experienced this um, about two years ago when I, I was re-hospitalized for the first time in about 15 years. Mm-hmm. And I thought going in there, I, I brought myself in prior to... Uh, any immediate risk because I just recognized that I was past my my typical coping. And I went in thinking, surely after all this work, here's my ego that I've been doing and that everybody else has been, <laughs> surely it has to be better. I mean, I've seen the glossy pictures and the brochures and the nice new sign out front on the street. Mm-hmm. And I went in and it was a hell hole. Yeah. It was, there was still, they had the straps ready to go on the stretchers in case they had to restrain people. The kid in the next room was screaming that they they tied him down and gave him his needle, just like it used to be, mm-hmm. right? It's a locked ward within a locked ward within a locked unit. In a basement. In a basement. <laughs> it's in a basement. Like it was I took terrib- a guess. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, you were right. It was terrible. Uh, so people don't realize, and I often wonder if, if you know, if you're going to donate, not to say don't donate money to a hospital or something, like do it if that makes you feel good and, and it does probably help. Uh, but also maybe go visit and see what it's like and what your money is is buying. And that's where I worry about, I struggle with this because I don't want anyone to think that their mental health is less important or not right. severe enough or whatever. Because I know that those narratives were very toxic for me, right. that whole idea of I'm not sick enough to deserve sure. help and blah, blah, blah. So I would in no way ever want to feed into that. But I sometimes worry that our our face of mental health and mental illness has become too palatable. Airbrush celebrities. To, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, and there's not like, I think it's great that celebrities or, sure. you know, or very privileged people or very articulate people or whoever, like, I think it's great that they're speaking about their mental illness. But I even think that like when I go into a school and speak, right. I'm like, oh boy, like I have tons of privileges. And if I didn't have them, they would not let me speak to these children. Right. Right. Like there's, I want people to really think about like, why do you guys feel comfortable hearing this from me? Why am I being paid to be on this stage when you don't want to hear it from someone else? What is it about me that makes you feel like you can let your guard down and listen? Right. Well, you know, I think that's almost, um, that's very much a responsibility of the advocate too, is first of all, get over yourself and, and realize that your privilege and realize um, how fortunate you are to be doing that. Uh, also to recognize that you're not representing uh, an entire community, you're representing mm-hmm. your own experience. Uh, but then the great responsibility that comes with that, that they gave you the response, they gave you the privilege to do that uh, for all kinds of unfair reasons. So you better wield that appropriately. Yeah. Right? But I just, I know I, I like personally live in fear of being like weaponized against someone yeah. else. Like I would never, cause there are these narratives of like, you know, okay, I have bipolar disorder and I sure. can do whatever I want with my life. Right. Um, which is great. Cause I would never want to be like, oh, I'm being, you know, and I am being limited in certain ways by mm. it. But like generally, you know, if I really decided I wanted to do X, Y, and Z, I'm sure I could pretty much do it. Right. Um, but I would never want someone else to be like, oh, Lee has bipolar disorder and can do this. Therefore I need to be able to do it as well. Right. right? Like, and yeah. I think that there's that, temptation for people to do that with all sorts of marginalizations, not just... Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I think like anything else, I think Mm -hmm. there there is some good uh, to that in terms of you being an inspiration for others, as I hope many advocates and people who share their stories are, that recovery is not only possible, as we say, it's it's actually likely uh, if you get the help that you need, if you can surround yourself with the right supports. And sometimes I think it, it is helpful for people to see somebody who's made it Actually, often it's helpful for for people to see somebody who's made it through and then think to themselves, maybe I can do that too, mm-hmm. right? I, I think it can become dangerous when you overinvest in that so much that you don't actually do what's right for you, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, because recovery happens 
differently for everybody. Yeah. And I guess I just, I always want to be mindful of just like the sheer amount of luck that went into me yeah. being able to like, <laughs> and even just again, that whole social idea of like, you know, what does it mean for me to have achieved success? What does right. it mean for me to aspire, like inspire others? Yeah. Like if I had, you know, done like a double middle finger and been like, fuck you, mental health system, I'm out. And I'm going to be like writing angry, um, maybe like, uh, like not super clear editorials, you know, yeah. on, WordPress for the rest of my life, yeah. as opposed to writing slightly more clear editorials on WordPress. <laughs> you know, if I was encouraging people to never, ever engage with the mental health system right. instead of to engage with it in a way that makes sense for them, right. why does that necessarily mean that I'm less successful? Well, and you know I what I mean? I don't think it does. And you're right. Success is a, a relative term. And, and that was the very, that was the most common way to do mental health advocacy in the generation prior to ours and in, in mm -hmm. the anti-psychiatric movement, uh, which was very much, and there's still a few of them around, though you almost never hear about it because of the pendulum. I think yeah. uh, that that's very much what it was. It was, it was. It seemed to be people talking about how their right, not only were their rights violated by the system, but they were abused and and denigrated and mm -hmm. and uh, traumatized uh, by the system in horrible ways. Yeah. And we never, I think we forget that, right? And it's very interesting to me because I know I worked with a lot of um, in New Brunswick, you know, the consumer survivor kind mm -hmm. of like movement and that sort of thing. And it's such a different context because the like the older mental health advocates I was working with, and I'm not even sure they would call themselves mental health advocates. No, I don't think they would. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they they were very much, you know, being hospitalized is a violation of your rights right. and all that sort of stuff. Um, and I think that that is true in their experience. But then I'm working with these younger mental health advocates and, you know, even people my age or our age. <laughs> um, and I know for us, like being able to access inpatient care was nearly different. impossible. Yeah. So our worry was not, oh, no, I'm going to get hospitalized and held there for a really long time and hate it. Right. Our so worry I won't. Was, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, 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 and that was basically it was that yeah. idea of I'm going to desperately need care and never, ever be able right. to access it. Right. And that's and again, this is where people get stuck on one thing and instead of seeing the diversity of, of what people need, yeah. uh, the conversation is always around, why don't we have enough psychiatrists? Yes, oh, yeah. there's, there's, <laughs> there's communities that have absolutely tragic uh, lack of psychiatry, but psychiatrists aren't the only people who can help people <laughs> either. Mm -hmm. They actually tend to be a very expensive form of helping relatively few people, uh, and they need to be used appropriately. Uh, they need to be part of the system, but used appropriately. So that's not going to, like if you're investing all of your, your efforts in that one thing, you're not going to see much of, an, uh, of a result from it. Yeah. But it, I mean, it makes sense with the biological model, right? We yes. have so many sick individuals. Yes. Let's get so many individual doctors to help right. them. More beds, more, you know, inpatient more individual rooms. treatments, yeah. right? As yeah, opposed yeah. to seeing it as that more social problem. Yeah. But it's as much as it's expensive to hire 10 psychiatrists, it's much more expensive to provide social housing for people mm -hmm. or whatever else they might mm -hmm. need, right? You would think so. But actually, the uh, are you familiar with the Mental Health Commission of Canada Housing First Research Project? I'm listening. Yeah. So <laughs> they uh, had this bold idea. It wasn't original. It had, it had been uh, tested elsewhere that if you take mentally people with mental illnesses uh, who are also homeless... Uh, often that would be an exclusionary factor for social housing. If they had, for example, severe and persistent schizophrenia, mm -hmm. they might not be eligible for housing. But if you actually took them uh, and gave them a house first, that that helped their mental illness. Mm -hmm. uh, and that recovery rates shocking. were much higher. Right, shocking. Take yeah. homeless people and give them a house. And that <laughs> that helps their homelessness and their mental illness. Yeah. Uh, and the research on this has been conclusive, that it uh, saves on the back end uh, more than it, far more than it actually costs to do yeah. because they're not using police as much. They're not using shelters as much, hospitals and doctors as much because they have somewhere to live and a safe place to sleep and they don't have to worry about uh, where they're going to eat the next day or if they're going to get stabbed in the bathroom. Like, so, so these kinds of interventions do work and we do have data to support it. Yeah. It's And that's, I guess, where I get hung, because, you know, doing the, this grad school academia nonsense yeah. right now, that's where I get hung up where we do have this data. Yeah. And so why is every provincial government not jumping on board with this, right? Great question. And that's that's where I get really frustrated, where I know we have like these, and not with like any one individual, like I, I've got no beef with the Mental Health Commission, no, but no. like <laughs> I we have this research and then it doesn't get translated right. into I like actionable would, change. And they that, would share that frustration, yeah, I think. Yeah. And I just find that so wildly frustrating. And I, yeah. I don't... I can't quite, like, I keep staring at the gap and being like, what the hell is happening there? Yeah. And not really being able to fully figure it out. I think you're probably in lockstep with the entire mental health community. It's like, <laughs> we know this isn't a mystery. And, and, or likewise with, um, treatment and recovery, there's, there's, 
a hundred years almost of research on treatments that actually do really help people that people still aren't getting access to. Mm -hmm. Something as basic and thoroughly researched as cognitive behavioral therapy. Not only is it not funded, generally speaking, anywhere in Canada in terms of ongoing, the type of ongoing treatment that people need or access to that treatment, um, people don't even know about it still very often. And it's, it's the gold standard in treatment for anxiety disorders. And it works. So why not, why not invest more heavily in that? And we've known about it for so long. Yeah. And that's, that's where I, yeah, I, I get pretty hung up on that. And that's where I feel like some of my hope slipping away. Mm. You know what I mean? And I always try to keep that balance of like, I want to be um, jaded enough to understand how the system works, yes. but hopeful enough that I still think it can change in a meaningful yeah. way. Um, and when I think about that, sometimes I like feel that hopefulness part slipping away and that yeah. jaded part creeping up sure. on me being like, you're not the first person to notice this and you're not going to be the last and like this shit isn't Fight, changing. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't have to tell you this, but fight the jadedness. Like it, it, because, uh, you know, survivors, consumers, uh, people with lived experience, whatever we call ourselves now, we change it every every five or 10 years. Mm. We consistently have, have ranked healthcare providers as among the most stigmatizing part of the system, doctors and and uh, especially inpatient healthcare providers. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about that because I've experienced that myself too. And I think it it's that they see it every day. They get used to it. They see people not recovering because the system isn't serving them. The system often, often makes them worse. And they see it every single day and they become jaded and hopeless. And then they pass that on to others. Mm -hmm. Don't you don't have to <laughs> you don't have to do that. I'm not saying yeah. that you are. No, this, no, but I don't I, but like you can choose not to be that. You can choose yeah. to be hopeful. But I am I also try to balance it out with what I see is sometimes people who don't work within the system have this naiveness to them. Yeah. Where there is this idea, well, if only people know where the gaps are, something will happen about mm. it. Mm. And I think that you see that in a lot of, like, I know, I'm sure I did that when I was like a fresh advocate or, yeah. you know, people who aren't working in this system every day who are like, oh my goodness, when people learn that this is how things work, <laughs> they there will be riots in the street and this mm -mm. stuff is going to change and yeah. that doesn't happen. And I... And that's where we see that stigma against mental health problems and illnesses and, and the treatment thereof. It's still rampant. Like mm -hmm. we're talking, sure, but it hasn't really sunk much deeper than that yet. Mm -hmm. And it's and it's again, who gets to talk about it without right. it being further stigmatized, right? right? Like I worry about that now with working in youth mental health and with youth mm. advocates where when I – because I would have started advocating at 19-ish. Yeah. Um, so actually, yeah. So let's go back there for a second and okay. tell me about that. You were still struggling uh, with the yes. wrestling. Uh, what changed to get you into advocacy at that time? Uh, I, so summer of 2012, summer after my first year of university, mm -hmm. I got really, really, really sick. I was living like fully alone. There was no one else in the residence building. I was doing what's called summer monitoring. So you live in a mm -hmm. residence building and – make sure it doesn't burn down. And I was like really engaging in eating disorder behavior is like just a very, very unsafe amount. Not that there is a safe amount, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like I was, I was in very pretty significant physical risk as well as like obviously emotional, mental sure. risk. Um, so I got really sick and I, I wanted there to be like, I think I had a very romanticized idea of mental health in my brain because I had finally at that point admitted that I had an eating disorder. I was like, okay, I'm like engaging in these behaviors a lot. Mm. This is probably like something bad. Yeah. Um, but again, like I was still like a relatively chubby person, like compared, like compared to my idea of what someone with an eating right. disorder was. So were you, what, how did your eating disorder manifest? Were oh, so I had like really or... bad bulimia, okay. really bad. There's no good bulimia. No, exactly. <laughs> but, um, just, yeah. Just the right amount. Just like of the perfect amount. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like binging and purging very, very regularly, right. like multiple times a day. Yeah. Um, and, which is a real expensive Mm. situation to be in as well. But I was mm. like, it was like my whole life was just around food. And was it um, your relationship to food, you think? Or was there something else going on? What was? I mean, I we see a lot of eating disorders with trans people. Okay. Um, I wouldn't have been able to articulate that at the time. It's no. kind of retrospectively, I've been like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Why is that? Do you know? Um, I think it's this effort to control your body a little bit. I think there's like something very biologically comforting about food. So like you mm. eat food and feel comforted and then like I've – and then for me it was like, oh, shit, I got to get rid of this. Mm. I remember reading somewhere about the difference between anorexia and bulimia being that like people with anorexia generally really want control and people with bulimia mm. are almost like the, the bigger part is more like self-loathing and self-punishment. Right. 
which that held with my experience because I keep the Irish Catholic thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It keeps coming full yeah, circle. I, 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 I couldn't find someone to flog me in the streets. So, or like, I don't know, those like, you know, those like punishmenty things. Yeah, I'm, like, yeah, I'm yeah. holding my arms up. I'm like, the gallows. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. And so it was, I think probably because I had like, you know, not a super deep emotional range as well. It's, it was something tangible and visceral. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Um, but it's also like, I've had my eating disorder since I was like 11 or 12. Okay. So it's hard for me to kind of like, I don't have a lot of memories from when I was 10. Sure. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, it's, it's been a part of my life for so long that I, at that point, so I would have been 18 at that point. So seven or six or seven years, like right. I couldn't really remember a way of functioning in the world without it. Right. And yeah, it was normal. It was soothing. Sure. Right. Because yeah. like I, cause I also have like, you know, pretty intense anxiety and lots of other fun stuff. And so I would, you know, go have a social interaction or whatever. And I've never been a very shy person, shockingly, right. but I, I have like this like highlight reel that's mm. constantly playing. So, you know, I'll leave a situation. Like, I'll, I'll be, we'll be having a great time. I'll be chatting with my organic, having like just a ball. <laughs> and about five minutes after the show ends, I'm going to be like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, Mark was sitting there thinking like, when's Lee going to shut the fuck up? Like being like, oh my God. Like, you know what I mean? It's, I'm it's not. Con- so we can clear that up right <laughs> but, away. But that's, yeah. it's a constant replay. <laughs> yeah. And so for me, the binging and purging was, and the self-harm, and right. it was all kind of tied together, but it was so comforting because yeah. it was like, it doesn't matter how much that person hates me because I hate me more. Yeah. And that was like, it was like a security blanket. In my case, the depression and the suicidality served a purpose oh, yeah. that, that the eating disorder, whatever the, the, the OCD, the bipolar disorder, it's, it might be maladaptive to people outside of your head, but in your head, you're adapt, you're trying your best to adapt to something, whatever that is. Right? Oh, I was on the phone with a, with a friend, um, pretty recently. And we were just talking about how they were like really kind of struggling with some stuff. And I don't remember exactly how it came up, but I basically brought up the idea that like, cause I've had like suicidal thoughts as long as I can really remember. Mm-hmm. Um, which again, it was why I kind of thought they were normal. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that's, I find that very comforting. And I still do to this day where I'm like, if things get bad enough in my life, I can always kill myself. Yeah. And yes, that's probably a very maladaptive technique, but I find mm-hmm. it very, cause it's like knowing that the option is there right. makes me not necessarily want to engage with it. Right. But yeah. if I, I think if I was like, there's no other way out, I have to go through it. Right. Then it doesn't feel like a choice anymore. And then you feel trapped. And I think feeling trapped is a very dangerous thing. Sure. Like when it comes to suicide. Yeah. And I think that's, that seems to be at the core of, yeah. of suicidality. And so I mentioned that to my friend and they were like, no one has ever said that to me. And they were like bawling their eyes out. Mm. They were like, that makes so much sense. Like, and it, it was that whole, you know, they had felt so embarrassed and so ashamed right. that that was comforting to them. And I was like, we, we all do what we got to do to like just, feel comforted. Just trying I to guess. get by. Yeah. And to me, like, I just, I find that very soothing, kind of in the same way that some people find nihilism very distressing. Right. Right. And I find it very comforting where I'm like, oh, well, you know, a hundred years from now, no one's ever going to remember that I existed and I'm okay with that. And that's right. like relief to me. And where yeah, some people yeah. are like, oh shit, yeah. I don't know what to do with that information. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of me. But even though, yeah, I... I creep into it every now and then myself. But so at 19 though, you, you made a shift at some point yes. into advocacy. Um, right? So you were very symptomatic and now you're yeah. talking so about it. So I was very lucky um, when I started, I don't know exactly what was going on at UNB Counseling Services, but when I started accessing them, um, they didn't have a limit. So I saw a counselor there, I would say once or twice a week for mm. an entire summer. Because you um, recognized stuff was getting out of hand. Yeah. Though. So, yeah. and because, oh, I guess this goes back to the romanticized image where I really thought that eventually someone would like drag me kicking and screaming against my will. Right. And I thought that like if I voluntarily accessed any sort of help, that meant that I didn't deserve it. I was right. like, if I was truly sick, I would never access help. Right. Um, but I just kind of got to a point where I was like, I am so sick of this shit. Like yeah. I just, it was just that exhaustion. I yeah. was like, I'm so sick of like waking up with vomit in my hair every single day. This sucks. Mm. So called counseling services kind of felt like, you know, nothing left to lose. Um, and yeah, kind of went from there, ended up getting diagnosed with like depression at first, then put on antidepressants. That's how we found out I had bipolar disorder. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you put someone with bipolar disorder and antidepressants yeah. or are they going to get much more, um, manic or much yeah. more depressed. Right. Um, and so I got really manic at first, but I'd been depressed for so long right. that I didn't realize I was manic. I just thought that's like what 
being happy felt like. Right. So I was like, wow, I can't believe I never realized what a brilliant and amazing person I am. <laughs> like, I can't believe. And how believe. I'm going to be an astronaut. Yeah, and, and like Jesus. I'm literally a rock star. It's <laughs> yeah. unreal. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then so we all, we kind of like sussed that out. I felt very well supported at UNB. I yeah. like had a psychiatrist and a dietitian and a doctor and a counselor and they were all kind of working together. Yeah. Yeah. And it was really, really great. And then I graduated and they were like, here's your diploma. Good luck, kid. Right. And then I like <laughs> You're on your own. didn't yeah. see a medical professional for two and a half years. Oh, it was real man. bad. Yeah. Um, but yeah, around the time I was 19, I started um, by posting on Facebook because, yeah. you know, millennial. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I just like posted something about um, they were doing a... Uh, awareness Day for um, Dots New Brunswick, which mm-hmm. is um, an organization that I don't think exists anymore. I think it's been oh. rolled into Partners for Youth. Um, but it was just like an awareness thing. And so as much as I like kind of talk shit about awareness sometimes, I'm like, work for me. <laughs> yeah. And so posted about it on Facebook and ended up getting kind of like all these messages about it. And all the messages kind of said like, you know, thanks for sharing your story. I have a story too, but like don't tell anyone. Right. And I was like, there's yeah. it's so messed up that there's like so many people who want to feel heard and like want community and feel alone, but we're like not connecting with each other. Yeah. Um, so I ran for the student union and decided to start my definition campaign through them. We put out a call on Facebook, um, that said like, do you have a mental health story you want to share? Email us. And we're like, fuck, no one's going to reply to We didn't even have a name for the campaign yet. Like it was just like, we want to put your face on a poster. Yeah. Um, And then nine people emailed us. They became the first faces. And that's um, how we first met, I think. Yeah. We hired you through the student union, actually. (laughs) You spoke at an event. I did. I do remember the event. They don't all uh, fade away after I'm done. But no, I I remember. And uh, and I remember thinking for me, too, because I went to St. Thomas, which is, you know, shares the hill with UNB. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to come back there and see that and and there's still a lot of work to do, of course. But, um, you know, it was nice to see somebody finally doing something. Mm-hmm. Right? And I'm like, I feel like very lucky. I know I've talked about luck a lot, but I was like, I just feel like I happen to be at the right place at the right time with the right experiences mm-hmm. and the right skills. And it all kind of came together for me. Mm-hmm. Um because you and I were joking about this before. I'm like, all I know how to do is be mentally ill and talk about it. Yeah, like, those are, those are my two skills. And, and market the shit out of that skill. <laughs> I'm like, even then, like, that's not as much my strength. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. But, but so what, I mean, I, I know you're tight on time, so I don't want to keep you any longer. But if you could tell me through all this, you know, you get into advocacy and, and the rest is history, as they say, and all that. So <laughs> uh, the uh, a couple of years later now, in down into the advocacy trenches, uh, studying social work, really still, you know, a very bright future, whatever you choose to do. Um, what have you learned so far along this process uh, about yourself? Oh, about myself? Yeah. Oh, oh, oh that was the twist at the end. I, I was like, let me tell ball. you what I've learned. Well, um, you can tell me about that too, but I'm really more interested in learning more about what you've learned about um, yourself. I've learned that I am a much better writer than I thought I was, uh-huh. <laughs> which is yeah. nice. Yeah. Um, and I guess that there's... I was like, I feel like I've learned a lot of negative things about myself as well. Like, Mm. I feel like all this, like, insight has kind of stripped away some of these ideals I've held about myself. Like, oh, I, like, I had always thought of myself as someone who was very good at being vulnerable. Mm. Um, And then I realized that's just because I share stuff that I actually don't feel is that vulnerable, but Mm. other people tell me it's vulnerable, so I thought it was vulnerable. (laughs) And then I have moments for real vulnerability. I'm like, oh, fuck, I don't want to talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) But now at least you have that awareness, right? Of where the line is. Yeah, and, like, learning about that introspection. And I just, I know that there are people who, like, don't find that introspection as interesting as I do. But I feel like everything in my life is is about trying to understand either what happened to me or what happened to other people. Like mm-hmm. I just there's it's like my brain is always like trying to fix these puzzles or something. And I think like a lot of people, like I ended up going into this because I am not able to cope with the idea that what I went through was purposeless. Mm. Right. And like, I mean, my dad was raised with Irish Catholic, but I was not. So I was <laughs> like, I was like, I don't have like any purpose in my life. Yeah. And so I don't necessarily have like a lot of, I guess, like higher beliefs or yeah. that sort of thing. And so I think that's part of why I'm so fascinated about mental health is yeah. just this idea of like, wow, what I went through was really bad 
and it can't be for no reason. Mm. Like so if mm. so if I can create a reason out of it, if I can create a purpose out of it, I find that comforting. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I think that I'm just like very selfish in mm. the work that I do because I'm just constantly trying to figure out like what the fuck Seeking happened. Seeking purpose. So so has are you at a place yet where you're able to say that your struggle has had purpose? I think it it's had purpose in um it's funny because I like to think very systemically mm. and that's where I lose that feeling of purpose because mm. it's just this huge system that like refuses to move. Mm. But when I think individually, when I think of like the individual people who I've got to meet, the individual people who have like told me that the work that I do has helped them and been meaningful to mm. them, that's where I find that feeling of purpose. Mm. So every nice thing that anyone has ever sent me on like Facebook Messenger or email <laughs> or whatever, it's like printed out, it's on my wall. I yeah. look like, I was gonna say I look like a crazy person with all like these printouts on my wall. And then I was like, well, you know, I am, so. <laughs> with red Sharpie connecting them and making circles. Yeah, and, yeah, and I just no. like, I can't imagine, like I was like, I don't yeah. know what I was doing before this. Like I was yeah. like, I wanted to go into, I've always wanted to help people. I wanted to go into journalism, but I didn't know that Stu existed. Right. So yeah, um, no, so nobody I does. went to UNB to like take English because I was like, that's basically journalism. Yeah. And, you know, I started with the student newspaper because I was like, I really want to write about problems. So like people will like know about them and fix them. And then I kept writing about problems and no one was fixing them. Yeah. And that's why I ran for the student union. It was a platform of mental health and gender neutral washrooms. Those are my like two. And it worked. Platform. They also now have gender neutral washrooms. There yeah. you go. Um, <laughs> and and so then it was, you know, okay, well, I'm going to do this because this will make it work. And now I'm kind of yeah. doing the advocacy thing because maybe that will make a difference. And, you know, if it, if I decide tomorrow or five years from now that this is not like the right way to make that difference for people, then I'll do something else. I look forward to seeing everything that you do because well, it's be so much fun. And you will, <laughs> and I will be reading about it. And uh, it's such a pleasure to have talked to you and to see all the good work that you're doing. I really think that you, this clearly is your purpose. Uh, you're using it well, and I think you're making a bigger difference than you think you're making. Aw, thank you, Mark. Thanks. <laughs> Okay, that's it for me and Lee, uh, or Lee and I, or Lee and me, whatever the formulation is. Anyway, it doesn't matter because Lee is amazing. Uh, check out their work at leethomas.ca uh, or on Facebook as well. It's not hard to find Lee uh, and and the work uh, on on LGBTQ uh, and and trans in particular um, mental health issues is really inspiring and I think needed. Fills a space that's uh, desperately needed in the mental health conversation. Uh, so I want to thank Lee for coming on the show and and for educating me certainly more uh, on those issues. Uh, if you like this conversation and all the others that we have on here trying to figure out what the hell it means to be so-called normal, uh, head over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show. Leave us a, a rating at the bottom, leave a comment, uh, share it with your friends and family. Apple Podcasts, uh, Apple Podcasts right? rather, and subscribe to the show. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, whatever. I'm everywhere uh, at Mark Hennick, at M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K. Or you can go over to markhennick.com for more about me there. Uh, if you want to try out some free psychotherapy, a free trial of psychotherapy, go over to betterhelp.com slash Mark, enter the promo code Mark, and you can get some online, some virtual uh, psychotherapy with your phone, wherever you are, whenever works for you. Uh, safely with credentialed, well-trained, thoroughly screened uh, psychotherapists. Sometimes people are nervous about doing online uh, virtual therapy because they're not sure what they're getting. These folks are top of the line, uh, well-qualified psychotherapists. So head on over there, give the give it a free trial uh, and see what you think. Betterhelp.com slash Mark and enter the promo code Mark. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody here at E1, Adrian, Kimberly, Allison, uh, my wonderful editor, Dave, uh, Dave Trafford, uh, for bringing all this together and making this show work. Uh, I think that's it. So reach out to me. Let me know what you thought on social uh, and tune in next week, next Monday, uh, for another episode of So-Called Normal. I'm Mark Hennick. Mark Hennick.